Waves. Have you ever stood inside the ocean? Toes curled, shaky perches on the seafloor. There is a lesson to be learned if you will stand and defy Poseidon inside his own court. Waves. They travel single file to hide their numbers. Waves, they suffer neither fool nor survivor. Waves, they just keep coming. The moon, she has no care for the divisions of your life. For these tiny boxes you amass and fill, compartments overflowing. Still she stands, looming as her soldiers consider their on onslaught. Waves, breaking neither themselves nor each other. Waves at every side, there is no path outside of them. Waves, exiling you back to the shore. How long have you been standing there? Hello, welcome to another episode of Poetry Theories. Uh, today we're, we're with Elizabeth. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm going to read your bio. Elizabeth M. Castillo is a British Mauritian poet, writer, indie press promoter, and a two time Pushcart Prize nominee. She lives in Paris with her family and two cats, where she writes a variety of different things in a variety of different languages and under a variety of pen names. In her writing, Elizabeth explores the different countries and cultures she grew up in, as well as themes of race and ethnicity, motherhood, womanhood, languages, love, loss and grief, and a touch of magical realism. Her writing has been featured in publications and anthologies in the UK, US, Australia, Mexico and the Middle East. Her bilingual debut collection, Caroncito, poems on, poems on Love, Loss y Otras Locuras, is for sale on Amazon, and her debut chapbook, Not Quite an Ocean, is out now with Ninepence Press. So it's lovely talking to you, Elizabeth. You're uh, currently in Paris, aren't you? Yes, I am. I live in Paris. Yeah, sorry. So you mentioned in the bio that you go by a variety of pen names. Um, so can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, it's basically because I, I write a whole bunch of different things. And when I was thinking about, again, for my brain more than anyone else's, how to sort of organize my different projects, whether it's children's picture books, whether it's my romance novels and uh, retellings of Regency and Victorian um, historical fiction and historical novels, um, or my essay or my playwriting, there wasn't much crossover. So, for example, I don't think that anybody who's read my poem about how difficult breastfeeding was and how much I hated it would be very interested in picking up my kid's book about eating all different kinds of foods. You know what I mean? It's not really the same audience. So uh, because of that, I, I developed three different pen names. So I'm Lizzie St. Cloud for my kid lit, and I'm Elizabeth Hades for my longer fiction novels, etc., and then Elizabeth M. Castillo for everything that's short fiction and poetry. Yeah, so um, so obviously you have this great, you mentioned there a little bit about the romance, no, uh, romance works that you do. Um, and it's prevalent in some of your poetry and in this collection as well. Um, you, you have an affinity for kind of um, English literature. Um, obviously you write in English here. Um, so, but as... as we read in your bio your background um is 
very uh, varied from the countries that you're from, from non-English speaking countries. Um, so where, where did you get that? Where did you um, get that kind of love of English literature? Um, I've, I've always been educated in English. I was born in London. Um, so, I mean, it just sort of part and parcel. Of it. Oh, you was born in London. My father grew up in South Africa and my mother grew up in London, Armoritian. And we were raised all over the place, but English was always a part of it. And my parents are very big readers. Um, definitely, as you mentioned, sort of my romance novels, a lot of them are based in the kind of Bronte, Gaskell, Austen period. And I grew up with that from the time I was little, you know, people calling me dearest, loveliest Elizabeth from Pride and Prejudice, things like that. So that's always been very common. And then being Mauritian as well, I grew up bilingual French with a bit of Creole. And, uh, and then I learned Spanish and Portuguese later at university. Okay, yeah, so it's starting to come together now in my mind in terms of uh, you living in Paris as well. It's even confusing for me. <laughs> it makes for an interesting uh, poetry uh, mix. <laughs> so, but um, the, so, so for you, it's the most natural language to write your poetry in, for example, is English. It is a language I've always been educated in, so definitely there is a facility for it. That being said, for some reason, there's also a lot of my poetry that comes out in Spanish. Not in French. My muse has decided that it's not a, it's not a fan of La Francophonie, so um, maybe that will change. But uh, definitely English and Spanish, and also because I'm working on a collection about Mauritius, there's a lot of Creole coming into. Mm. Where does the Spanish come from then? Because you, I think I saw you went to Latin America for a little bit, but otherwise uh, uh well, how I, did just, you learn I always, Spanish I always and... loved it as I said I mean I think Lulu you must be bilingual too at least um I grew up with with English and French and so they were like my brothers that were always always there and they're part of my life and I do love them and I get that they're good looking etc but Spanish when I came across it as a teenager um through music and poetry that I found I fell in love with it. It was the love of my life. I love the sound of it. I love the structure of it. I love the words. I love the way that it's so raw. And so I just pursued that into studying the language, traveling Latin America, working in Chile and Mexico for a while. Um, and I've just never let go. I'm sort of that, that lover that will love forever um, my Spanish language. Yeah, I love it. And I feel like this connection, uh, Not Quite an Ocean, is very tender and vulnerable and like lays out a lot of who you are do you feel like using english only has a has a, a meaning uh, about what you're trying to say in this collection using english in this collection did you say um yeah does it have a meaning to only use english in this collection compared to other languages not at all it was very very uh it just i mean it sounds terribly artistic and pretentious but the poems came to me in english so i think there's one word of spanish there's cimientos in the second poem but these poems just they just came to me in english pretty much um i am looking at getting them published by the same person who helped uh, sorry translated by the same person who helped me translate cajoncito um, to see whether I can put together a, just just for my Spanish-speaking audience, that would be a separate project. But no, these ones just they just came in English basically. It's like a kid can be born blonde, a kid can be born with dark hair. These ones came out English. It's <laughs> <laughs> your uh, English baby then. <laughs> um, so, and you mentioned that you you mentioned that um, this this is kind of a collection of poems that didn't have a home. 
And um, it's interesting. So they're arranged by uh, the different oceans, which I, I love thematically. Yeah. Um, and so how did you how did you go about arranging them in the different oceans? You know, they're, they're named after Pacific, Atlantic, Arctic, Indian Ocean. Yeah. Um, well, how did they, really, how did you ascribe? You know, how did I'm really glad that you picked up on that because that was a very conscious and very difficult choice because it took a lot of post-it arranging and arranging. Um, Basically, I started with Indian because I'm from Mauritius and so the Indian Ocean is everything that is closest to me and towards the end there's sort of that celebration of who I am and being comfortable and loving the sea and the warmth and etc. etc. The Arctic is the coldest so there's a lot of cold loneliness in there and uh, the Pacific and the Atlantic, I think the Pacific had the poems that had to do with my time in Chile or Mexico because or somehow reminded me of those seas and those sort of the climate crisis in those areas. And uh, I can't remember which one now, which is terrible. And then the other one was basically everything that was left over. <laughs> but definitely sort of starting with the parameters of, of the Indian Ocean and the, and, the, um, and the Arctic, and then from there fitting up. But it's tricky putting, a, putting them together because you don't want sort of all of the depressing poems together and then all of the happy poems together and then all of the, you know what I mean? I think it's like, it's like a, a good meal. There needs to be variety and taste and texture and crunching and softness, etc. So there was also a lot of just playing around with that as well. Okay. So, so you mentioned that um, the Indian Ocean is the one that's closest to your heart, you know, um, the one that you're most familiar with. Um, uh, but you put that last, last in the collection. Uh, what's the significance of putting it last? Because I I love these questions. I must say, Tom, they're fantastic. Um, because I would like the. I mean, it's there's some serious themes in the in the collection. There is intimate things about me, but mostly it's sort of my rage at the state of the world, the state of women, violence against women, uh, the pressures on women who are mothers, who are carers, who are, you know, all of these things. Um, but I didn't want it to be the kind of book where once you've read it, you're like, ah, you know, you have to go and rock back and forth in a corner for a while. I wanted to leave people on a hopeful note and for it to be a celebration because that is the book itself, although it does delve into and interrogate all of these themes, it is, I hope, a message of hope and a call to action. And so that's really what the, I wanted to leave it with. Um, but thank you for asking that because literally I did think do I start with the happy do I end with the happy where do I put the happy so it was a very conscious choice in that sense I've read I've read collections and, and from from artists that I love um, and I've just not been able to pick up the book again because it was quite traumatic how, how because they are talented far more talented than me in fact their poems are poignant and they really affect me and uh, and so I'm not able to kind of just read and put the book down and crack on with my life. It affects me on a deep level, and I didn't want anyone to particularly feel that way once they've read mine. I love that you say that because actually in development communications, because I studied development, uh, there's an emphasis on like always putting a call to action and not just mm. leaving people in the doom, especially when it comes to talking about the climate crisis. Like not just state the facts and then say we're we're dead yes. basically and. I like that you'll think about this in your storytelling and your, your messaging. And I, I just generally, I find your collection to be really well balanced in, in between the aesthetics of language uh, and making you travel and like dream and also making you aware 
and uh, of of issues that make you angry, and like this cry for for action. You know, I I just felt like you would blend that really well um, yeah. to oh, yeah. Oh, thank you. It's a, it's a beautiful wonderful. experience to go in. It's like very personal to you and also very anchored in the real world. And um, if I'm going to follow that with a, with a question, I think it would be, how did you choose who to include in your poetry? So you include like Sarah Everard and, and like some literature references and Greek mythology. Like how did you choose what to include? Uh, yeah. I must say I didn't. That is kind of the fruit of having, of the collection being made up of sort of so many poems that were out in the wild kind of thing, is that um, there wasn't necessarily a guiding theme. I happened to have a poem about Sarah Everard just because I had so much rage <laughs> over that and a lot of other things that went unreported in other countries. Um, and then I had a poem after I read Madeline Miller's Circe and I just saw this, her descriptions of Thetis. Um, I wrote Nereid and then um, Lucille Clifton again, after reading her collection, I was inspired by that. So it, was, it wasn't necessarily a conscious choice. It was only afterwards that I was like, wow, there's actually a whole bunch of different, different um, homages, if I could put it that way. Like there's, there's even, you know, Bertha Mason was t very hard done by in Jane Eyre. Let's be honest now, poor thing. Um, so there's, you know, there's all of these things that were just really pretty much randomly there. And in the acknowledgements, I thank all of them because there wouldn't be these poems without them. Hello, Lulu here. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. I have an exciting announcement to make before you can continue listening. Project Here Is is now sponsored by Benki Publishing. Benki Publishing is an indie micro-publisher that champions neurodiverse artists and writers from other marginalized groups. So you can get a 10% discount on all books with the code poetry to your ears 10 This code doesn't apply to zines, but it covers all books on their website, which is www.bentkeypublishing.co.uk. The code and the website link will be written in the episode description. We hope you find a poetry book you like, and tell us on social media if you purchase one. Now, back to our conversation. This is Lulu from the future. Unfortunately, we had issues with the recording, um, so I'm going to read for you The Cancer by Elizabeth. Um, so thank you for bearing with me. The Cancer. The earth was held between two breasts. Warm and safe from beast inside. I need to do it again. The cancer. The earth was held between two breasts. Warm and safe from the beasts inside. The world was kept against her chest. Milk from one. Salt water from the other. The world was split along her middle, one half wrenched like a joint from a socket, like a feeding calf from its mother, the other severed, long, painful strokes, and she cried out, 
this bleeding earth. With every motion, the fault lines cracked. The oceans stood to attention, bursting their banks, covering the earth. Only volcanoes left standing, spitting fire and ash from their gaping mouths. There was no alternative. It had to be done. Letting the blood deep from the earth's core. And after the rubble, after the rains, after much digging beneath each breast that cradled the earth, lay the cancer they had buried there long before. And this is this is excellent. This is something you do really well in the collection, which is the kind of double meanings of using the ocean. And it sometimes is very difficult to tell whether you are talking literally about the ocean or whether you're talking metaphorically about the ocean. And I think this is an intentional no, great. Yeah, and it's um it's something you do really well in the um, one of the poems, I can't remember the name, but it's one, it's kind of who will, um, who will, who will hold um, the ocean? Who will hold, hold the ocean? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, that's actually an interesting question because, and those two poems that you mentioned are, are a good example of that, the cancer and uh, who will hold the ocean, which I'll read in a minute, because the cancer was uh, inspired by a generative poetry workshop in which on cartography so we were shown different maps and told to write about it and um the one that that inspired that poem was an old world um empire colonial map where sort of the globe was split in two and it was basically two spheres and when i saw it i was like that looks like boobs so i wrote the earth was held between two breasts um and just looking at it sort of it was on the old sort of used paper and it just got me into that that headspace of the colony and the discovery but rather invasion of the new world etc etc uh the race for africa the race for latin america and it, it got me thinking beyond that about how all of the problems of the climate crisis that are linked very clearly to capitalism uh all of the capitalism that started in the colonies uh well in the colonies in during the times of empire how no matter what we do no matter how little plastic we use or how green we go we can cut and cut and cut away at the illness and somehow it's still there and there was also at the time two very good friends of mine one who actually passed away from breast cancer and i remember seeing her mastectomy scar and there was there's something about the devilishness of that disease that you can be cured and in remission and well and then years later it was actually always in your body. And it just, they all, all these ideas just kind of cohesed together to bring that sort of sense of frustration of how much we do and we fix and we heal and we mend, and yet it's still there. Um, and, uh, and because there, again, it's not a poem about cancer. It's not a poem about the colony or the empire or capitalism. There's a lot of different things in there. Um, so I don't really have the luxury of making it about any one of those things. Otherwise, it would have been a completely different poem. And I like that also in something like that, anybody can come to it and read what they want. Some of them clearly are like, oh, this is about 
breast cancer or whatever, whatever. And others are like, this is clearly about, you know, the climate problem in the climate change, or this is about the volcanoes in Mauritius. So, you know what I mean? Everyone gets something different out of it. And um, the other poem, which I'll read in a second, Who Will Hold the Ocean? That came from a place of very personal metaphor. Um, I remember one of the lines that started, it was literally something I wrote about myself. It was like one of those days where I'm a homeschooling mother of young children. I have an elderly relative who has dementia, lives with me. I'm a teacher. I, you know, I do charity, but there's lots going on. As in the lives of most women, there's a lot going on and you give and you give and you give. And society and society's mindset and the structures around us and the structures of power are not designed and are not willing in many cases to give us the spaces of rest and respite that we deserve and that we need. So it came from that place of I'm giving and I'm giving and I'm giving, but who's going to give to me? I'm, 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 you know, serving and I'm serving and I'm serving. I'm keeping safe. I'm feeding. I'm nourishing. I'm nurturing. Who's going to do that to me? And not me personally as Elizabeth M. Castillo, but me as in all the women like me. And from there, the parallel with the ocean is very simple because, to be honest, if I were to write an essay about it, I would write about the struggles of womanhood and how it's difficult to raise children without a village, all of that. But this is not an essay. It's poetry. I don't necessarily want to say, I am so alone, no one's taken care of me. You know what I mean? So it, it ties in very nicely. And as I was writing it about myself or, you know, myself as the speaker, um, the, the metaphors, because it's a completely metaphorical poem, just came naturally, you know, the, the metaphors of, um, there's a line about oil, oil spills, and in fact, Mauritius in 2020 suffered a catastrophic, devastating oil spill that to this day has not been brought to justice. Um, and I just paralleled that with, for example, the food that we eat, not so much in France, we're very lucky where I live, that there's a lot of, um, government help in making sure the food that we eat is natural but all over the world it's in capitalist interest to keep us full of chemicals and processed things and whatever whatever and yet we're supposed to be productive and produce and this and that when our bodies are failing us because big pharma wants to make money you know so that was one of the examples in which um the parallel between the ocean still having to do her job while being full of rubbish <laughs> was clearly paralleled with you know women are everywhere basically um so if you like i can read that poem now so yeah please do yeah. sort of comparison mm -hmm. of the two so here goes who will hold the ocean who will comfort her in her rage whose arms could wrap across the earth whose legs wouldn't buckle under her constant motion who could see past her belly swollen with oil and regret the great sutures that hold her together in her depth. Who will breathe life into her wearied sinews as her strong arms hold the continents apart? Who will tell her she's condemned to hunger? Of the slander spoken by the rivers and streams, who will thank her for her giving, her constant giving? Who will teach her that the darkest parts of her body are where the creatures are the most boneless and bright? Who will dismantle the great iron skeletons of conquest that lie rotting, eating away at her throat and back teeth? Who will whisper eulogies to her salt, to her sand? Who will defy the moon and the white tyranny he holds after over her? Who will hold up her glaciers, fractal by fractal, until she is spent? Who will comfort the ocean? 
who will hold her ends in place. Thank you. That's a beautiful poem. And I feel like you were talking about uh, this is a poem and this is not an essay. Um, and sometimes I find it hard when you want to express an idea that is like a, a political concept. And I feel this is very close to mm. ecofeminism um, to know how mm. to express it in a poem in a way that feels true and in a way that just doesn't feel like hammering the point and you know still using poetic language still using images and stuff like that and i was yeah. wondering like what place you came from when you were writing this a, a place of exhaustion <laughs> a place of personally just like i've had enough someone needs to take care of me now um <laughs> But um, I've always been hesitant. In fact, even with the promotion of this collection, I, it was only once the manuscript was done and formatted and, you know, we were reviewing the details and the blurbs were being written that I, someone mentioned eco-poetry. And I would never dare call my work eco-poetry eco because I always feel like I haven't done the work to earn that title. To me, this is totally um, an eco-poetic work, though, because... From what I've learned, eco-poetry is defined by like speaking from the perspective of the non-human, so not necessarily your perspective as a mm. human. And you do that many times. You speak from mm -hmm. the ocean's perspective. You speak from... Well, that, well, that, well, that's it. That's what I ended up doing, is I ended up looking up the definition to be like, does it qualify? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and it is. It's just anything that sort of interrogates the climate crisis and speaks exactly, that gives a voice to the non-human. So I was like, well, technically... But it was never my intention to be like, this is what, you know, it was just clearly, perhaps having grown up on an island in Mauritius, the ocean is such a huge part of me. Um, I don't know, it was the most natural thing for that, for those parallels to be made. But I completely understand what you say, because you don't want to preach at people in poetry. And you also don't want to use the environment and the climate crisis as a cheap metaphor, you know, for destruction, for pain, for suffering because it is such a sacred and urgent thing. You know what I mean? You'd have to be, I mean, who would dare do that? To be honest, I wouldn't, I, I, I don't think any poet could actually dare, should dare to do such a thing with such a serious subject matter. Um, so it's, it's a subject that deserves a genuine treatment of it. You know what I mean? A genuine interrogation of it. You mean to use the metaphors and kind of superficial language of climate change yes you know you know like my, my my i don't know my heart is breaking in the same way that there's natural disasters around the world kind of thing it's very self-serving if that's i don't know but again it's not my place to judge i can't i can't think of anyone who's done it but definitely it put a a respectful fear in me to deal with you know to, to talk about these that, that seems like quite a recent um recent phenomenon um that as you say um we should give more respect to the the kind of language we use in poetry uh with regards to the environment mm -hmm. um in, in some ways it's, it's kind of a perennial thing to respect nature but maybe um as you've just outlined using it in such a trivial way for the for the sake of like delighting the reader is um is a new thing but um that's part of the it's part of your skill as well it's part of um kind of the craft of becoming a better poet um that you can 
really see those make those distinctions right and you can really have kind of the maturity to make a judgment as to like what is um exploitative and what is um exactly like as you say earned right (laughs) what is um sincere and yeah that's exactly the term tom exploitative to exploit um something that is so urgent and so removed far removed from any one artist and any one poet you know what i mean um could you could you forgive could you forgive a young poet um from maybe doing that by accident though you know somebody who's not as maybe of course i i'm 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 very forgiving so i mean you do you anyone does anyone but i would not want to it would not it would jar my reading you know what i mean it would it would be like "Mm, this feels gratuitous kind of thing um you know i hosted a series on my blog um for two for three years in fact of interviews uh to promote other indie artists and writers and i had to say no and then i did try to say yes to everybody a nice mix of diverse people from all all sort of walks of life especially women especially women of color but you know everybody um because we all need a little bit of a help sometimes don't we um the only person i said no the two people i said no to were people who did not it wasn't about the climate crisis it was about um it's a phenomenon white guilt white supremacist guilt um and although their work was great although the words and the poem were craft wise were were enjoyable there was such a feeling of gratuitous this is a this is a hit subject you know this is getting traction this is what i'm going to write about they were white Perhaps they were white poets were wrong. the poet yes, was white absolutely. they were right. Yes, they were writing from their perspective. and But it read like something that either needs to be a piece of memoir for yourself, um, because it, it there was there was something in it that was exploitative. It was around the Black Lives, Lives Matter movement. And there was something in it that felt like, because this is a subject, I'm going to write about it, rather than, I don't know, it just it felt that way to me. Perhaps I was wrong, but I did use my my freedom because it was my platform and my space to say, you know what? In fact, I think I gave them a chance. I was like, don't you have anything else to send me? And I think they, one of them did. Um, but that that's an example of, for example, something that I would not subscribe to because it feels gratuitous and it feels like you're hopping on a trend and... And I guess also that's why I was hesitant with this collection. I didn't want to be like, oh, this is this is eco-poetry because everyone's writing eco-poetry. I did not want to do that because it was not my intention to set out and write a collection. It, it just happened naturally. And um, and yes, I'm not, you know, I, even it's not the first thing I say about this collection that it's an eco-collection or anything of the sort. Um, because I believe there are poets who are putting the work in and the research in to put that kind of art out there. And I am not. Mine is very incidentally so. That's, it's interesting you draw those distinctions, but um, I, I wonder from the from the reader, um, you know, from like you say, from the reader, they just say, okay, it's eco poetry because <laughs> it yeah. mentions. But it's it's interesting to hear your perspectives on, you know, feeling um, feeling entitled to it, feeling like you've earned, and and hopefully that that bodes well for your future development as a poet your future development as a creative you know that you've got more areas to grow into there um yeah i think i'm gonna disagree because 
sorry do you want to okay go yeah. ahead yeah i think i'm gonna disagree because um like i don't think eco poetry needs gatekeeping like you need to do a ton of research or it needs to be written from one perspective it's also interesting to expand what we mean by eco poetry and like the different styles of writing and i feel like you'd find a good audience if you if you said this book is an eco-poetry book or it's like eco-feminist, it's like using these buzzwords in a way, it's like, it's how you find your audience and it's like a way of marketing, right? So it's not the artistic mind that says that, like you want to say this is very nuanced and it's about the experiences of life and that but when you promote a book, you you need to put your marketing hat on a little bit. And I wouldn't say you don't qualify in the eco-poetry because you haven't meant to to write it this way you know what i mean does that make sense mm. well no that's interesting and thank thank you for that perspective because it's true i think that because we can be very careful and maybe that's also a thing about being a woman we always second guess what we do you know what i mean um so perhaps you're right perhaps i am being over cautious um in that so definitely i'll take that on board you know um i guess it's just that as you say as a writer as an artist you want to be growing all the time, you know? And I guess I come to everything that I do from that perspective of this is cool and I'm proud of it, but I'm gonna keep learning and keep learning and keep learning and do better, so. But you're right though, take off the artist hat and put on the marketing hat, absolutely. I think a, an adjacent question to that is, it seems natu natural for you to write from the perspective of plants, like there's a poem I really like that's about moss um you know from from animals in the ocean and that and i was wondering uh you know what drew you to that from your education or culture you know uh if you were inspired by some things in your life to write in this way oh, the poem you selected. my poem about about moss and him of moss and consequence that one Well, it's it's an interesting thing. Um, <laughs> it's I think it's a cultural phenomenon. There's things about it all over social media about how millennial women like me have jumped straight to the granny hobbies. <laughs> We've skipped our wild years and just gone for gardening and knitting and you know homemaking. So there's a bit of that, I must say. As you can see behind me, my emotional support plants are all there. Um, but. Uh, in my case, in fact, um, I, I went through a period of my life, which in fact is what brought me to publish my poetry, not write it, but publish it, um, where I, I suffered a great deal of loss. I, I had a miscarriage and I lost friends to cancer and like in a very short period of time. And there was a lot of grief just suddenly in the space of six months. Um, and one of the ways that I found myself dealing with this grief, and this is obviously a very personal thing, this is me as a person, not necessarily as a poet, was I suddenly became obsessed with plants. I was repotting and, and uh, what do you call it, um, propagating and, um, I mean, obsessed. And one of the things that I'm still obsessed with is moss because it's so beautiful and sensual and it just cracks on with life. It doesn't need anything. And it came from there. And it's only now looking back that I think uh, it is because there's something about nurturing something that grows, maybe that was feeding the, or not feeding, but comforting the, the, the grief inside of me and that's really where it came from and it and it has become I'm afraid to say an obsession with plants because I do love growing things I love seeing my children grow they're a bit noisier and a bit more demanding but I love seeing them grow I love seeing my cats grow I love seeing fish grow I love seeing plants grow and there's just this need 
inside of me now. I also think it is possibly a very biological feminine thing, thing to nurture things that grow, possibly that instinct to have lots of things that you're taking care of that are growing. Um, that's what I would say, having seen sort of my girlfriends around me and my female relatives, etc. But that that's where it came from. And the, the hymn of moss and consequence is literally just my love song to to moss because it just cracks on. Like it doesn't doesn't show off for anyone. It doesn't need anyone's approval. But it creeps and creeps and creeps and and it's resilient and and I love it. Basically, I wish I were moss. That's a real unique take on uh, moss. It's not usually the most popular. But uh, like you say, it, 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 it tends to be something that people, you know, almost treat like a nuisance, right? It's a nuisance thing. Um, like no, what that just seems to exist on its own. So it's interesting to have a, a poem about something which people overlook, take for granted. Mm. I, do, I actually have another poem that didn't make it into this. That's about, that's about da uh, Pakret, uh, daisies and dandelions, the same thing, how they are the most resilient beautiful things because nobody cares about them um yeah would you like to read the poem i'd love to hear it yeah oh no that poem's not done <laughs> sorry <laughs> that's a what that's not done that one the the hymn of moss and consequence is the one that um Oh, sorry, that one. Oh, yes, of course, of course, but I need to find it. I don't have it in front of me. You have two poems about that. No, she's got a poem about daisies. Daisies. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. sorry, we got it mixed up there. We just want to take a moment to talk to you about Fawn Press, an indie press that publishes poetry that takes you by the hand and leads you into the woods. You can get 10% off all books on their website, www.fawnpress.co.uk the code poetry 10 as small letters poetry 10 you will find the code and the link in the description below so this is my poem um hymn of moss and consequence i wish for myself the luxury of spreading across a dark forgotten corner of the world soft like velveteen moss Coating the underside of a fallen tree, a giant at rest, a home for small, important creatures. I wish to dangle blissful, working with and not against gravity's iron pull. Like ivy off a precipice, no vertigo, not afraid to look down. I wish to plunge my roots deep into the earth, trace my lineage through mantle, crust and molten core to know the quiet strength of mushrooms, to know that fungi like me are not so easily moved, creep, goaded by the sunlight, creep outwards to fruit and flower like lemon thyme, gather myself into a fragrant heap of lavender with the audacity of bindweed, choke the hope from every living thing that dares to cross my path. That's really beautiful. And I'm a big fan of mushrooms. Uh, they're part of my like spirituality, I guess. And uh, I just want to have this poem on my in my bedroom, you know, on the wall, like to to tune in and start breathing again sometimes. <laughs> and I feel like just in general, you're wow. really good at, at creating new stories. Because like, when we talk about the climate crisis, we always talk about we need to find new ways to relate to our environment and to nature, 
to nature and that goes for art as well that goes for storytelling and you do that so beautifully and I just want children and you know young adults to to read your work to feel like they're connected in different ways than <laughs> than what we taught you know so yeah you <laughs> you're making the future here <laughs> I love I love this as well. I'm glad that you picked this. This is really beautiful. Um, yeah, we don't we don't have a lot of time uh, left, unfortunately. Um, there's a lot more we'd love to talk to you about. Um, but um, uh, what struck me, my favorite of your poems in the collection is actually the opening poem, which is uh, I believe it's called Welcome. And I know other publications have picked up on this as well they've it's been published before in another collection um welcome friend is called no not in a magazine in a magazine yeah welcome friend and can you tell us just a little bit about this um it's it's kind of a entreaty to a new reader could be i'll tell you all about it i love this poem because this is the poem um one of the poems that I think possibly at least 10 people have read sort of, you know, helped me be to read and proofread and then, you know, whatever. And I've had a different response. Like they've all loved it, but they've all loved it for a completely different reason. And I love it. I love that about poetry. I love that it can, it's like an abstract painting. You, the reader or the viewer sees what they see in it, you know? Um, so this poem <laughs> is about periods. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I have my children and, and, um, as anybody who menstruates knows of a certain age, uh, there comes a point in time when a late period is not a welcome thing. Um, just because, you know, so, uh, basically, um, I was having a late period and I was very, getting very stressed about it for various health reasons. And when it finally arrived, I was so relieved <laughs> that I wrote this poem, Welcome Friend. But I didn't just write it in terms of, thank goodness I'm not pregnant. I wrote it in terms of how menstruation, it really got me thinking about menstruation around the world. First of all, the taboo around it, which is ridiculous considering almost half the planet menstruates. Um, and how it was treated in different societies. I have young girls who are gonna menstruate one day and, and you know, I'm often thinking with their father about how we're going to talk about it, etc., etc. My husband grew up with only boys, only brothers, so he's it's a complete unknown world for him. And I just began to look up sort of the different things around the world, the things that I had read, you know, in passing. In Borneo, they have a cacao and manganese ceremony in certain tribes when a girl reaches puberty. Um, in China, there's some places in China where a very long time ago, jade was given for beautifying and cleansing during the period. Um, so it's basically an expose of through these different cultures from Chile to all the way to Japan, um, how menstruation was treated, how the ritual of entering womanhood and blood loss, etc., etc., was treated. The most interesting part of it, which might have been the the thing that sort of set me off researching all of this was the line, I will read it in a minute if you like, if we have time. Um, I have marked your coming on a fishbone because that was a study that was done by anthropologists where they had found these fishbones of uh, prehistoric people where 28 notches had been made regularly. And because it was a male-dominated field, they had all assumed that it was men keeping time, whatever, whatever. 
until a female anthropologist came in and said, why would a man need to measure 28 days? This is clearly a woman's doing. She's measuring her cycle because, you know, we, we, they obviously had no, not really many other ways of keeping time. And I love the fact that it took one woman to come and kind of discover the real reason behind this. And that even back then, women were quietly in secret planning their lives and appropriating the cycle of their bodies and the cycle of the moon. There's research being done about how men have a 24-hour hormone cycle. You go to bed depleted and you wake up full of beans, whereas us, it's 20, well, however long your period is, but 28 days of ups and downs and all sorts of things. And how this needs to be normalized, because we are incredibly complex creatures. We are more aligned with the moon, whereas men are more aligned in the, with the sun. And I don't mean that in some sort of spiritual way. I mean, literally our bodies and our cycles. So all of that is what is in this poem. But I love it because people have read it and been like, oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an embracing of the future, or it's welcoming a friend that you've missed, or it's an invitation to the reader, or... You know, and it's like, I'm glad that is what it is for you. But it is none of those things. It's about a late period, you know? So if you like, do we have time? Shall I read it for you? Before the girding of loins, before the great red of war, we rejoice to hold you captive, you, the captor. Welcome. See, I trace your battle lines along my open palm, etch a mark for every hostage held. See, I have caught you like a hungry bear, her well-earned salmon. Bathed myself in salt, you are welcome. Laced your footprints with seeds, come, I will hold a feast in your honour. Welcome, cacao, manganese and cinnamon, blood, sage and marrow. Welcome, fire and earth, tonight we will fly your colours. Welcome. See, the jade is prepared. Blades to cut, to clear, to welcome are at hand. I have marked your coming on a fishbone. I have felt it in the pool of the moon through the sea. I see it hanging off the shadow in my daughter's eyes. Welcome, friend. Your place is here with me. Thank you. That was Welcome, Friends, the opening book. It's so good, the line there. I felt in the pool of the moon through the sea. I see it hanging off the shadows of my daughter's iris. It's, uh, yeah, it's so great. <laughs> I'm glad. I, I like it too. I like it too. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's the opener. It's the opener for um, the collection, and I think it sets the tone brilliantly, and has a musical quality to it as well. I absolutely. So it's been lovely to talk to you. Unfortunately, we've literally run out of time today. Um, thank you so Love much for you. being so generous with your time. Thank you so much, and Elizabeth. It was. It's a beautiful collection, and we can't wait to share it with with people and uh you know draw them to your writing well thank you so much for having me and for your enthusiasm and for your advice as well lulu for my marketing absolutely i will take that on board it's been a pleasure to speak to you guys thank Thanks so much have a great day Thank you for listening to Poetry to Your Ears. This podcast is published as a newsletter on Substack. All of our content is published for free, but if you would like to support our work, you can become a paid subscriber. This will help us support transcripts for the deaf and hard of hearing community, 
and anyone who would benefit from reading the podcast alongside hearing it. You can also support us for free by rating the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Share the show with your friends, fellow poets and poetry lovers. If you want to interact with us, you can follow us on at poetry to your ears on Instagram and at poetry to number two your ears on Twitter. Or you can also write a comment on Substack. If you're American and you're listening to us, send us a message. Half of our listeners are American. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time. <laughs>